I wrote a book about my life named Moguldom. You can get more information about this book at moguldombook.com. I talk about acquiring a knowledge of self, self-determination, and building a business over 10 years. There are some gems in this book that you don't want to miss. One way to support the Go movement in this podcast is to go to moguldombook.com, buy the book on pre-sale to support the Go movement. Let's go. You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have uh, Tunde Ogulana coming back to the show. He's the founder and CEO and family wealth advisor of Axial Wealth Advisors uh, in uh, South Florida. Welcome back to the show, Tunde. Thank you, Jamarlin. We spoke in mid-November of last year. You know, we had a cautionary tone about markets since we spoke, I believe the markets crashed down in a very short amount of time, about 15%. Of course, they're back up yep. over uh, 2,800 S&P, nearing all-time highs. How do you handicap the market temperature and where things are probably going to go from here uh, for the stock investors <laughs> out there? Well, um, for every compliance uh, person and lawyer listening, uh, definitely this isn't uh, advice that I'm giving to the public here. But... Um, the the it's a good question because obviously I don't have a crystal ball, but I think that um you know the consensus is we're we're in the one of the longest bull markets in in American history, and um, we've had some uh, uh, I think welcome um, uh, deregulation and other events from this current administration, which has helped boost that expansion along. Um, but I think everyone's in the, in in the camp of just wondering how long is this going to last, and what without knowing the future i think what happened when we during the time we spoke last quarter uh what what i really feel is that was a great reminder that there's risk in the market and so without being able to time when exactly to get out or when when the top is here um i think that last quarter gave us all um um the kind of foresight that this boom won't last forever and that when the market drops it drops fast and hard so we better prepare ourselves on the downside um, through whatever hedging strategies one might employ. Okay, so on that note, the Federal Reserve uh, Chairman, uh, Jerome Powell, he has pretty much gone on pause, him and the Fed. Yep. And kind of, they have totally flipped the script just in within like four months as it relates to quantitative uh, tightening uh, in terms of draining liquidity out the system and then also on rates where the market and the Fed was predicting rate hikes this year at least one now the fed is saying they're on pause they want to be cautious is that added risk in the market where the fed switches their policy in a four-month window relatively quickly meaning that with that kind of uh escalate uh you're thinking on hey you know what's going on in the economy what's likely you know coming down the the pipeline um so yeah then the second part of your question yes that obviously has someone like me thinking why would they change their mind on the first part of does it affect things um i mean i guess by answering yes on the second part of if, if millions of people did what i did and and start questioning things I guess directly, it'll um, it, it their their comments will affect uh, the outcomes long term of of, um, of people's behavior in the markets. But I do think it's necessary that the Fed communicate, and I do find um, uh, Jerome Powell 
an interesting Fed chair because he's he's stated publicly that he wants to go back to the Fed being more data driven and not um, issuing what they call forward guidance. So basically what he's saying in, in kind of layman's terms is I want to stop being like the Fed has been maybe the last couple decades where we try and forecast and predict kind of the future state of the economy. I'd rather just deal with data that I see now and then be able to pivot on that. And whether that's better or worse, I don't know, but that's the type of Fed chair we now have. Recently, the bond market pivoted to a prediction of rate cuts where the the global data has been funky. It's been trending to the downside. And now you're starting to see central banks cut around the world. Now you're starting to see your, your first rate cuts in this economic cycle. And so the, the bond market, of course, as you know, is forecasting a rate cut, meaning that the market was just predicting a rate hike. Now folks with billions and billions of dollars at risk with a lot of skin in the game, they're betting that the fed is going to cut this year. Uh, where Jerome Powell will, will, of course, go up there and say, hey, the economy's, you know, good, it's great, you know, we see a lot of positive things, blah, 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 but at the same time, they're pausing. People with a lot of skin in the game, they're betting that the Fed is going to cut. Does it look like to you that, hey, we're headed into a, a, a recession? Typically, before a recession, as you know, the yield curve inverts, if you could you know, share with our listeners uh, what yeah. an inverted yield curve is and how that has been a reliable predictor of recessions, the last two recessions. Yeah, no, definitely. So I'll speak to the inverted yield curve. Um, and that just simply um, means that longer term bond yields are lower than shorter term bond yields. So what does that mean? And let's get back to this whole idea of the bond market in general um, and interest rates. So I, I appreciate the way you've kind of framed the questions here because I've always told my clients that the bond market is probably one of the most important things to watch in the world. Um, just if you're curious about the state of global economies, maybe the direction that we might go with global wars, things like that. Um, if you look at the history of the bond market uh, globally, which is probably, I'm just trying to think, um, you know, you're probably talking about a five to 600 year history of central banks starting in Europe back in those days in the Middle Ages that that issued bonds to fund themselves. Um, and, you know, there, over that five or 600 year period, uh, you could probably count every major war in the world and most major economic events that were driven by activity in the bond market. Um, without getting too off topic, we could even go into the history of the United States Civil War and how the Confederacy basically lost the war um, pretty soon after the Europeans started, stopped buying their bonds um, because they, as a way to make European investors feel safe, they decided to back the interest payments and the assets of bonds instead of cash with cotton, which was the highest uh, or biggest commodity in the 1800s. And when the, the Union Army took over the port of New Orleans, the European central banks basically said, we're no longer investing in you. We're no longer buying bonds because we don't have a guarantee anymore that if you can't pay us cash, that the actual hard asset, the commodity, which is cotton, can get out of the port of New Orleans and we'll get to Europe. And when basically the war was over in less than a year after that. So 
those are the little things we don't learn in school, but that's how important bond, the bond market is and, and investors in, in the bond market are. So what does that mean for us today? When you look at things like the interest rates that you're talking about, the, the yield curve of being inverted, um, there's some, the, the, the U.S. Treasury issues bonds, just for a quick education for those that may not be as nerdy as us about bonds, um, the U.S. Treasury issues bonds to finance itself. So whenever we hear that um, the country's in debt, this $20 trillion or $22 now trillion in debt, or we hear recently on the news, uh, I think last month was the um, all-time record for a, uh, a budget deficit for uh, the United States, that that is all financed through bonds. That's, that's the government issuing notes. Investors buy the notes with the money that the investors are paying for the notes. The U.S. government can finance itself and operate. And for, the, um, for borrowing people's money, investors' money, they pay back an interest rate. And so what happens is there's different types of government debt. There's notes, which, um, which um, are very short term. Then they have T-bills that go out to about a year. And then treasury bonds, which go from two years, five years, 10 years. There's, I think there are still 20s and then 30-year bonds. And so what happens is the interest rate that is paid on those bonds is usually seen as a reflection of what's going on in the economy. And when interest rates are rising like they were last year, as you mentioned, um, it's, again, a double-edged sword. The good news is it shows that the economy must be doing better and heating up because normally rates go up as a way to cool the economy. Um, because what happens when rates go up, money becomes more expensive to borrow. And uh, for most of us out there that are consumers, you can imagine if a mortgage is 3%, you can buy a much bigger house than if a mortgage is 13%. And if a credit card is going to charge you 1%, you can borrow a lot more money than if they're going to charge you 25%. So think about that when you think about interest rates going up. Um, the, the double-edged sword on that is when interest rates go up, sometimes it hurts stocks because it makes it more expensive for companies to borrow money. And you know the consensus is that that'll hurt their bottom line if they have to pay more interest for debt to, to expand. And that's one reason why the market sold off last quarter um, when we last had our conversation. Then you've got the idea of lowering rates. That's usually to stimulate an economy. So to kind of alluding to exactly what you're, what you're discussing now, the concern is that Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, has announced that they will not raise rates and they may even cut rates, that gives some people some pause because they feel that that means that the data the Federal Reserve is looking at must then mean that the economy isn't as strong as we all have hoped. Can you explain for the audience why investors kind of take the inverted uh, yield curve as a, uh, okay, uh, a signal so, for recession? Okay, so normal yield curve, in an, uh, and so the yield curve speaks to the direction of interest rates from short term going back to, let's say, two year bonds all the way out to 30 year bonds. And it goes back with just the concept of time and money and what investors are willing to take for the time that their money's tied up. So if if we can imagine if I were to borrow um, or sorry, if I were to invest and lend someone money for two years, I know that, you know, I'm going to get it back in 24 months. So I might have a certain percentage that I charge for that. But if I were going to lend, let's say you, because you're sitting across from me here, um, the same amount of money, but for 30 years, 
and I'm not going to see my money back for 30 years, common sense would say I'm not going to charge you the same amount of interest that I would for only 24 months. If I go out 30 years, that's, uh, how long is that? 360 months. That's a long time. So I might charge you a lot more interest for you holding my own capital that I can't do something else with. So normally the yield curve slopes in an upward direction. Shorter term yields are lower and longer term yields like on 30 year bonds are higher. That's a normal environment. What an inverted yield curve means is just it means that the yield curve inverts and it just goes opposite where shorter term yields are higher and longer term yields are lower. And what that normally means is it's, it's, it's a signal. Now, the Federal Reserve and others through things like you mentioned, quantitative easing, um, can manipulate sometimes um, how far out rates rise or fall on the yield curve. But normally, when a yield curve inverts, the concern is that there's much more demand for longer term bonds. And what that means is, and if we look at today, and I'm just curious, I'm going to look here. Uh, just to add to your point that rates, you know, you're not going to have a lot of growth in the future. Correct. In so terms of it, it's predicting that that's, the pain may really Exactly. Yeah. So that's where I'm getting at. That's why I want to look and yeah. give you accurate numbers here. So at 3.18 p.m. on on, um, on March, uh, what are we here? The, the 20, March 28th, the 30-year bond is at 2.87. But if you look at the, the 10-year bond, it's at 2.44. So what's that telling you? That's a flattening yield curve between the 10 and the 30 year. But it's basically telling you that if I had, let's not say me and you with our pennies, but let's say we were a big institution like a Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, and I had a billion dollars that I had to put somewhere or $30 billion. I could could buy U.S. treasuries and get 2.44% to give the U.S. government my money, my capital for 10 years. They're going to give me 2.44% per year back. But if I go three times that amount for 30 years, they're only going to give me 2.87. So the fact that there's so much demand for 30-year bonds, to your point, kind of tells people like me that kind of just been around and understand this system that there must be a lot of either fear out there or there, there doesn't seem to be many uh, other better alternatives that are safe to put your money for 30 years. And that doesn't, that doesn't bode well because 2.87% to tie your money up for 30 years isn't really that attractive. What do you think about this? The Fed comes out and says, things are going great, but we're going to stop QT in the fourth quarter. Uh, we're going to stop raising rates. We're going to go on pause suddenly. Watch what the Federal Reserve does. Don't pay attention to what they say. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and let me add to that. If Jerome Powell sees a truck coming for the economy where, hey, there's, there's some real trouble brewing in the economy and it could, things could be looking really bad, this storm that's coming. Can he really come out and tell the world, that we see a shit show coming. Yeah, I mean... He can't do that. I agree. That, that would be a nightmare, right? Yeah, you're right. And I mean, look, that's where I think everybody sometimes needs to calm down with their conspiracy theories about why things happen with this and that, especially with governments. At the end of the day, um, unfortunately, the Fed has to also be political. 
in terms of, and I don't mean political between parties and all that. I just mean they have to play their own version of politics, to your point, right? They, 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 everybody wants the economy to be, to do well, and of course, and they do as well. Um, but they have to be careful because obviously they don't want to necessarily come out and outright lie, but you're right. I mean, if, if they see some real storm clouds forming, they may actually, you know, the, the, the perception may become the reality if they just come out and say, everybody needs to put their head in the sand and take all your money out of the stock market and all that. And you know what? Everyone's going to do that. And it's going to create the crash that they may be trying to avoid. So it's a good point, And I don't think there's any um, 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 magical way to get out of that conundrum. That's I think all leadership has that has to deal with that. Yeah. And to our last conversation, uh, <clears throat> Tuesday night, we weren't seeing hey, go out and, and sell everything and, and <laughs> panic, although markets did crash 15%. Yeah. We weren't saying just go out there and panic and sell everything. But we do uh, realize and appreciate the fact that as an investor, you can go in different risk gears. Hey, the bull market, you know, 10 years in, the smart money most likely has already been made. It may be time to go to another gear, where there's lower risk with your investments uh, across the board. You're taking less risk in an environment where it looks like the cycle is about to end and most likely things are going to crash uh, at, at, at some point. Uh, and so that's that kind of lower risk gear, that second gear that could be, uh, you know, more exposure to bonds, more exposure to gold, uh, more exposure to hard real estate or more exposure to cash. Yeah. In Q4, cash outperformed stocks. Cash is not an embarrassing thing <laughs> to hold, particularly at the end of economic cycles. When the end of the last two economic cycles, you had crashes. Yeah. I believe that we're not just going into a recession, but the global debt around the world, China, uh, when, when you look at the global debt, that is way higher than when it was in 2008 during the last financial crisis. So yeah. there's a lot more debt in this system. At the same time, rates are relatively low. So the, the idea is that the central banks, when problems arise, they're going to cut rates. But this time around, when things get bad, there's not a lot of room yeah. to cut, right? So they're going to go to Kiwi. They're going to yeah. start printing money. I would say belling out the wealthy, belling out investors. And Janet Yellen just this week came out and said that, hey, it sounds fine if the Federal Reserve, the United States, started buying stocks and bonds where, for example, if Tunde's holding a stock portfolio uh, that he has kind of uh, accumulated over the years, the U.S., the federal government would go in and start buying stocks. So the, the, the Federal Reserve would be a buyer, whether it's an index or individual yeah. stocks like Google, Facebook. They would actually own stocks and help investors to keep this fake stock market up, or yeah. what I would call it. Everyone, I think people see that, hey, in the next crisis, they're going to go back to QE. That's all they know. Yeah. They don't have a lot of flexibility yeah. with rates. How could QE look different than hey, we're just going to, you know, allow big banks, big financial institutions to make a lot more money with uh, QE in the, in the system. It's very favorable to yeah. stock investors and financial institutions. But what about that middle class 
What about the people on the bottom? What, what kind of QE, uh, what type of flavor of QE could benefit the, the, the middle class and the people on the bottom? That's a good question. And, and my first answer is, I don't know. I mean, I'll just be straight up with that. That's a, because the thing is, is what do people in the middle class and the bottom need? And I think that's such a broad answer. One could say that, you know, you could just give everyone cash, but then we know that that probably wouldn't work out in the way that, you know, I think philosophically people would hope. You could say that you could, you could, you could reinvest instead of giving so much to banks and these big institutions that the government could reinvest in things like retraining people that have fallen behind because of technology and technological changes. Um, we could, we could, you know, uh, shore up our education system so that we have an educated population going forward that can figure these things out as new generations come about. I mean, there's, there's, it's bigger than just money. I think where we're at, it's, it's a societal issue because I agree with your point about 2008. You know, I, I don't disagree with QE and what the Fed did because we only had one other historical, um, I think, event and context to look at, which was the crash of 29 the Great Depression, when the Federal Reserve did the opposite. They tightened money. They didn't have a quantitative easing program, and we saw that it led to a decade of a depression that took a World War, World War II for us to get out of. So I think that the QE on its face this time worked. We avoided a depression. You know, with, by 20, let's say 2011, 2012, I think unemployment was pretty much back in check. Um, you know, companies Inequal were inequalities at a record high. Yeah, I mean, and that's. But I think it's, it's worked for. Isn't it skewed towards the wealthy? Well, yeah. I mean, look, in, in, invariably it is because the wealthy own assets that that inflated QE after helps. correct real estate and stocks. If you but, own assets, QE is really helping you. Correct, but I think that um, it's it's not as simple as that. I think there's things like the tax code. I think there's just other things that help with widening the wealth gap. I don't think it's just QE and, and just that alone. Um, because also, I mean, look, I'm just thinking off the top of the head here. We could have an environment where if something like this were to be retried, then instead of just, you know, throwing money at the banks and the institutions and that's it, what one could say is, you know, we're, we're, we're going to take uh, companies that have a 401k plan, for example, and and you know incentivize you know higher matching or something like that to help or or some variation of that to help the middle class as the market rises again maybe they're participating a little bit more too there's always a give and take because and here's what i'm getting at, at the end of the day this is i think where our country is at right now with a lot of things because it, we see it <clears throat> manifested in the political arguments you know, you got the Democrats that can't figure out if they want to be socialists or capitalists or democratic socialists or whatever. You got Republicans that can't figure out if they're, you know, tribal to 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 the party of one man or the party of, of Lincoln and kind of what the Republican Party stood for. And I think it all comes down to the real question that we've had in our country since its founding, which is what is the role of government and versus kind of private industry and capital? And I think that if you look at something like QE, QE was basically no different in my mind than a welfare program for corporations. I mean, you know, they, if, you, if, if, you, if you look at what well, we grew up in in the 80s hearing about welfare queens and all that and the idea that you're giving something to somebody who didn't earn it on, as a, on an individual basis, if we are honest with ourselves and look at QE, we gave things, we gave money to institutions 
that kind of didn't deserve it because they got us in this mess. So I just look at that it's neither right or wrong. It's more like, let's just be honest and say that the government, when, when, when kind of the shit hits the fan, for lack of a better point, the whole point of the government is they're the only ones there that can create money and, and be a backstop to a downward spiral. And whether it's delivering that to individuals, corporations, or a combination thereof, that's, that's probably what's going to happen again. I'm not a big fan of QE. America is broke. America needs to be restructured. Uh, the system needs to be reimagined. But we know that the authorities, the rulers of America, they're scared of looking down that window because that's a very dark window where, hey, this thing has been a Ponzi scheme. Uh, we have to restructure and make some huge sacrifices. The people yeah. don't want to do that. Correct. So they're going to start printing money, printing money, printing money until that stops. And when that stops, now that they're experimenting with QE and money printing, the next time, maybe it works again next time, but there's going to come a time when rates are zero. You don't have any room to cut anymore. And when QE stops working, when that doesn't work, it's going to be lights out yeah, in I mean, the United States. But I have some ideas. So I'm not a fan of QE, but if they're going to go to printing money again in the next downturn, rates are at zero. We need to start printing money, stimulate the economy. Instead of uh, allowing the banks to borrow at zero and handing the banks money to go buy up assets, why couldn't the Federal Reserve buy out student debt? Why couldn't there be student debt relief? If there's not total relief for certain classes of students, certain categories of students, why couldn't they go ahead and buy the student debt up? Or they're already holding a portfolio and say, we're going to knock down the student loan interest rates to zero for the next 10 to 20 years to let some of you potentially catch up. Well, um, oh, I got one more. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, the well, that's a big answer there. Oh, no, so no, no, let me, no, let me no, just no, start because okay. we'll, we'll be jumping around too much. Um, here's my cynical answer. Because students who have debt don't have a lobbying um, group in Washington, D.C. spending $100 million a year to buy Congress people to, to make these laws. I mean, preach. And I, and, I, and I hate to be that cynical, but at the end of the day, we're human beings. And, and you know, it seems like every system of human history works uh, in a way that is all about, you know, money and power ending up finding each other. That's why we haven't seen communism work, I think, in a practical sense. Because even if you look at, those systems, it, traditionally that were called communists, it seems like the government leaders always were wealthy and had a lot of money, and they weren't living like everyone else. So it goes back to that. I think that, like you said, if, if they give a zero rate relief to student borrowers, who's going to buy that debt behind the scenes if it's getting 0%? Are you going to want to invest in a mutual fund or hedge fund that buys that debt at 0% and get no return for the next 20 years? That's why there's an inherent imbalance in the system, because... In order to kind of, and, and I think that goes back to the role that the government is supposed to play, and I put air quotes there, in a Keynesian, and, and, and that's why I say, if you go back to just Keynesian economics, the whole point of, of, of government spending during a down business cycle is because Keynesian economic theory states that the government, when, when, when the economic cycle is bad and we're, in a, and we're in a recession, private capital has dried up. So the only capital left is governments and governments going into debt. 
And then the idea is that if you go into debt as a government during a recession, then the growth, when the boom turns around, and if you had a disciplined uh, leadership in government, they'd turn off the spigot once the growth starts. The tax revenue from the growth would then replenish the coffers of the treasury that spent the money of the government, and the cycle would play itself out. The problem we've had in the United States really since probably starting in the early 80s I mean, we've had government debt before that, but it really started exploding in the 80s, um, and it never stopped. I mean, it, it did. We did have uh, solved the the budget deficit by the end of the Clinton administration in the year 2000. And there's actually for the people listening, you can Google and look at uh, Alan Greenspan in the year 2000 actually gave speeches, and it's amazing to think of now, just 19 years ago, where he said we may have to do away with the 30-year Treasury bond. Because he's, he basically thought that we'd have the debt paid off by 2010, like the total United States debt. And again... Man, he's it, been wrong on Well, But you know what? He yeah. couldn't predict this. He couldn't predict that the next administration... This is why I don't want to make... This isn't so much political, because it isn't knocking you know the particular people, or it's more of the philosophy. The next administration, right? The Bush administration did their tax cut cut a trillion dollars in, in revenue for the Treasury over a 10-year period while simultaneously going and having two wars, the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, which kind of has never been done in our country's history, where you're cutting so much revenue while spending so much at the same time. So that means when Bush left office, there was a $4 trillion debt and a $1.4 trillion budget deficit. And then, of course, when Obama left office, there was a $19 trillion debt and but they had gotten the, the the budget deficit down to about 500 billion um so the debt ballooned in general even though the the the, the budget deficit came down and now under trump it's i think a 22 trillion dollar fiscal deficit and the budget deficit's back up to over a trillion so we're at the point where it may start spiraling and the point is is that it's at, at going back to the federal reserve and interest rates Something important to um, to just tell the listeners, the Federal Reserve doesn't control the bond interest rates. The Federal Reserve only controls the Fed funds rate, the discount rate, and the Fed funds rate is the overnight lending rate between banks, period. So the the real um, um, controllers of the, of the bond interest rates that we've been talking about in the yield curve are actually bond buyers, bond investors. Now, what QE did... The, the Fed was a purchaser of bonds. So the Fed can play that role, but it's different from the when the Fed says we are raising or lowering the Fed funds rate. That's only the overnight lending rate for banks. The others that play a role are, and people don't know this, but every Monday, the Treasury, U.S. Treasury has an auction. It might be Wednesday as well. And I think last, uh, or this week, um, the auction, uh, they sold uh, $41 billion worth of, worth of Treasury bonds. And what happens is, they, they, they start the auction at par, and par for a bond is 100. Well, if they're bid up, then the yield that is, that, is, that is paid to the investor is squeezed lower. And if the bonds, if the, if the buyers aren't that interested, that means the Federal Reserve has to lower the price, and they might have to sell bonds at 97 or 98 to attract the investors to buy. That would cause interest rates to rise. So the, the concern I have now, I would say in the medium term, not short term like the next year or two, and not long term like 20 years out, but I'm talking over the next five, six years, would be 
if our debt starts hitting the levels of like 30 plus trillion and God forbid our budget deficit were to hit like one and a half to two trillion, some crazy numbers like that, the bond market might finally start saying and the people at the auctions might say, we're no longer going to take 10 year debt at 2.4%. We're going to force you, the, the US Treasury, we're going to force and bid down and we're going to start buying bonds way below par so that we're paid a much higher yield in order to lend, continue to lend money to your point, because at some point investors are going to hit that tipping point where they're going to say, are you going to be able to pay us this back? And what's the strategy? So I don't, I don't know if we're there yet, but we could get there at some point. And I think what we saw in the last decade, and I think this is where the public is all screwed up. And I mean that in, in just a positive way, not that it's their fault, but they've got so many mixed messages from our leadership. That's what everybody was scared of 10 years ago when under the, Obama administration, they did that um, that um, trillion dollar, um, I don't know if you call it bailout or whatever. And, and when the Bush administration did TARP, remember, everybody thought that rates were going to go skyrocket and we were going to be the Warmack Republic like Germany and we have all this hyperinflation. And what people didn't predict was that you would have the Fed come in with quantitative easing and be an artificial buyer of that debt to keep rates low. So that's why it's hard to predict interest rates and where they're going to go because they can be manipulated from so many different forces. And that's why I, it's just tough to tell, like, by the end of this year, are they going to raise or lower rates? I mean, I think it's just going to be data-driven. This is part one. Tune into the next episode for part two. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamarlin Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.